This is Environmental, a podcast for people who care about the environment but don't know what to do for the best. Unless you've been living under a rock, you'll have noticed something strange is going on lately. The news is full of environmental catastrophes and huge protests are shutting down cities all over the world. I'm Georgia Elliott-Smith and I've been an environmental engineer for the last 25 years, but even I'm confused about what's going on in the world right now. So I've decided to speak to normal people about their concerns, try to answer their questions and talk to the experts to get the truth behind the scare stories. And along the way, I'll be uncovering tips on what you can do to make a real difference every day. Today, I'm talking to my sister, Amy Black, who I think it's fair to say is definitely not an environmental expert. Would you say that's fair, Amy? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Definitely. But I also don't burn my rubbish. (laughs) Not every day. Do you want to tell us a bit about yourself? Yes. Okay. I'm a writer. I am a businesswoman. I run a dog daycare and groomer training centre in Cheshire. And I love the environment. (laughs) (laughs) It's okay. You don't have to pretend. I'm not a bad person. Well, I'll be the judge of that. That's fair enough. I don't know anything about environmental issues other than what I read in the news. And I'm really aware that what I'm reading in the news, probably very biased. I just, it just feels like the world's on fire. Well, the world is on fire. Well, the Amazon's on fire. Everything's on fire, Georgia. Yeah, it is depressing, isn't it? And every day there's like some really nasty story about the oil industry, mining, fracking, polar bears dying. And literally the Amazon is now on fire and it doesn't seem like anyone gives a shit. Yeah. And I have loads of questions for you okay. that you will answer brilliantly. That's a high expectation. I'm going to do my best. Are they intelligent questions? No. (laughs) Some of them. Some of them. (laughs) Most of them will make you go, wow, how do you not know this? (laughs) That's okay. That's that's exactly why I want to set up this podcast, because I really think a lot of people have questions that they're afraid to ask or they just kind of assume it's stupid not to know. Yeah, I'm just broadcasting that to the world, though, instead of just asking you on the phone. (laughs) I don't think I'm alone, though. I don't think I'm alone. But when you come to things like fracking, I I have no idea what that is. I just kind of laugh a little bit because it sounds like a swear word. I don't actually know what it is. I just know it's not very good for the environment. So there's loads I want to ask you. Okay, well, where I want to start with this podcast is eco warriors. How much do you do? How much do I do? I find that when I ask people that question, what I always get is people immediately go into a kind of guilty thing where they start saying, oh, I should do more. I know I should do more. I don't do enough. So it's like everyone I talk to has this immediate guilty conscience. Well, how would you ask that question? Because it probably depends how you're asking it. (laughs) What are you doing for the environment? No, I just say to people, you know, I'm an environmental consultant. Oh, Jesus. (laughs) No, I don't. Do do I? How do I say it? Hi, I'm the environment police. What do you do for the environment? Like I'm the Stasi or something. Uh, uh, Not enough. (laughs) You're right. It isn't enough. No, we just get into a conversation about it. I think it's when people find out that I go along to protests. That's probably when they start to feel a bit uncomfortable. (laughs) You're like the religious mental case of environmentalism. I think when you start with something like, 
Hi, I'm an environmental engineer and activist. What do you do for the environment? People are going to shit themselves. Of course they are. They're not going to go, well, hey, they're environmental activist. I'll tell you exactly what I do for the environment and it's going to blow your tits off. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's probably it's probably quite a harsh opener, isn't it? So going back a little bit, you know, we've obviously grown up together. Why do you think we've got such different approaches to the environment? Is it something that's not really interested you ever to learn about? It's it's like asking me, why don't you go to Crown Green Bowling? I just, it's something I just never really thought a huge amount about, but I'm aware of it. I just don't understand it. And I, I'll be completely honest, I don't care enough to learn the ins and outs about it. I know that I recycle and I, I'm really good at recycling. I make sure that all my jars go in the right box and all my tins go in the right box. But I, I don't know where that goes. I don't know if if I slip up, if I put things in the wrong box, does someone at the other end make it right? Like, I feel like there's a lot of responsibility on me to do everything right. And that's absolutely fine. I completely accept that as a you know a householder and um, you know business person. Do you generally carry worry about what's going on with the environment then every day? Yes. Well, because it's in the news every day and I'm I'm happy for that to be in the news every day because it brings my awareness to it. What really gets me and what and I, and I know I'm not alone with this is they used to be on Facebook. I'm not anymore, but I know my feed on Facebook was just full of the way that deforestation in the Amazon and the fires affect animals and I would see things like chimps fighting diggers and all this kind of stuff and I just couldn't bear it like it would make me cry just the titles would make me cry and that's just with animals so I don't I I can't even bear to get into what's happening with the, the people that live in those areas so I need to face it but not traumatize myself. I don't, and I don't know how to do that. Yeah, this is where I want to come from with this podcast is to get get behind the stories and try and work out what is really going on here. Is it as depressing as it first seems? Because there's got to be hope. You know, the world is an incredibly complex system. We are intelligent beings or yeah, we should be. <laughs> what can we do? Where's the good news as well? You know, where are people doing great stuff? Yeah. And how can we move away from feeling so much guilt and depression about it into a place of feeling empowered and positive and we can really make a difference yeah and I have loads of questions for you why are big companies allowed to dump things in the ocean why are countries allowed to not be involved with these agreements that prevents environmental damage I don't understand why there's so much pressure on the individual but there doesn't seem to be any well not any but there doesn't seem to be much pressure on the huge businesses that can actually make a big dent in the problem immediately instead of a small dent that I can make recycling my shampoo bottle. Yeah, this is where the activist movements are coming from. So Extinction Rebellion, which is a movement which I'm part of, we are creating a lot of nonviolent disruption to try and force governments to make the sorts of decisions that are needed for big change because we've just had enough of the talk. We were learning about global warming when I was at school. 
you know, mm. and I'm now 42. So we've known about global warming and the effects of pumping carbon dioxide into the atmosphere since easily since the 1950s. And before that, you get quotes from scientists on it. And yeah, it just keeps going up and up and up. And you're absolutely right. I think now the pressure on the individual to act is really high. And I think people do feel guilty. I mean, it, with everything that I know, I am still nowhere near perfect. You know, for me, it's a it's always been a job. I go and I work with businesses that want to make a difference to the environment. They're not business as usual. And that's where Extinction Rebellion is coming from, going, no, business as usual has got to change. We cannot continue the way we are. So governments, until you do something about this, until you change the way that you tax companies, you change what people are allowed to do, people will always pursue the cheapest, most profitable route. And there is this principle um, that was set up in the in the European Union, you know, however you feel about the European Union, which is called the polluter pays. Now, that's a principle that underpins environmental legislation in Europe, you know, and it makes a lot of sense. Like the, the person who is doing the polluting ought to be the person that pays to clean it up. However, companies that are pumping huge amounts of carbon dioxide into the atmosphere are actually just making massive profits. They're not paying for replanting the Amazon, you know, to absorb all of that carbon dioxide. And they're just profiting, profiting, profiting. And so the principles that we use in environmental management aren't really being followed. And it fundamentally has to change. So, for example, a company that produces lots of plastic makes profit from selling you all that plastic crap, but they don't put any money into the cost of recycling plastic. But why? Why don't the why don't the legislators say to these companies, stop it, stop doing that, stop doing that now? Yeah. Is it money? Is this just all money? Yeah. Well, everything is about money, ultimately. So the way that business runs is it runs in its most profitable form. So it will do whatever it can get away with. So ultimately, it is the government's we have to legislate because companies are not going to just do the right thing if it doesn't make money. That's so depressing. Are there any company that is saying we're not going to wait till we're forced to do to take action? We're going to do this before we're told to because it's the right thing to do. Yeah, there are. Actually, you know, I, I paint quite a depressing picture there. I think the what I'm really talking about is big conglomerates, you know, you're, and I won't name and shame, but I think you know what I'm talking about. So the big multinational companies historically have been profit first. Um, and we've talked in sustainability for a long time about this concept of triple bottom line, where you're supposed to look at not just return to shareholders or profit, but also your impact on the environment and your impact on society. But that's always been a nice to have. That hasn't been required at all. In general, you can just kind of crack Why on. can't you name them? No, I don't want to name them because I just think then it gets into a nasty shaming situation. I'm happy to name the companies that are doing brilliant things. I mean, there are small companies now and there, there always have been small companies who've been trying to do the right thing. But I think now it's become much more trendy. There's much more awareness about environmental issues. And I think as well, this thing about environmental guilt, there's a lot more environmental guilt going on. So people are looking for companies that have strong values that they can get behind. And I think people are understanding now that the way you spend your money is really important, like the businesses that you support are important, but it only goes so far. And I think also there is kind of a demographic, you know, of people who 
people want to learn about this stuff and want to make the effort, there are always going to be consumers who really don't give a crap about the environment, who just want to buy the cheapest thing they can. You know, they're going to go down to the, the shop that sells everything for a pound. You know, For the pound shop. <laughs> and just buy loads of everything for a pound. They don't care whether or not kids have been working in basements all through the night to make it. They just don't care. It's cheap and, and they'll buy it. And, and actually, I, I almost don't have much of a problem with that because I feel fundamentally that those products ought to be more expensive. The, the way that economics and the way that the governments around the world set things up is that actually producing things that way makes it more expensive. It shouldn't be the case that something that is abusing people's rights is polluting the environment that transported halfway across the world. All of those levels ought to be taxed, legislated against to a point where that crap is so expensive that you can't get it. And the products that are non-toxic to the environment, that use reusable packaging, that are produced more locally and don't create a massive burden through waste or pollution. Those things, because they're not taxed or legislated against, should be the stuff that you can get for a pound. Right. So I think we need to talk to an economist about this because I feel like there's a fundamental principle here. Why are things that are so polluting and so damaging so cheap? Because I don't know enough about it to really understand how we've ended up in this situation. So that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to go and find an economist who can answer these questions for us. So that's what I did. I took to social media and found this fantastic chat. I'm Simon Mayer, I'm a research fellow at the University of Surrey, where I work in the Centre for Environment and Sustainability. And I spend my time trying to think about how we can build a better economy, which is environmentally friendly and helps us all to live better lives. something that we have known about for a long time, and I keep seeing on social media quotes from scientists yeah. going even back into the 1800s yeah. about the impacts of pumping carbon into the atmosphere. Yeah. Given that we've known that for so long, and we've had all these protocols and conventions, why is it still going up? That's, that's, that's a nice question to start with. <laughs> start yeah. with something like just coast in there really nice and simple. Uh, so from my point of view, it's because our entire economic system is essentially built on the processes which cause global warming. Hmm. So essentially, you think about any economic activity, it requires transformation of material things using energy. Hmm. So sometimes that's obvious get a piece of coal out of ground, burn it to produce a big piece of metal. But it also happens with things you don't think about so much. So like when you stream a film or watch a YouTube video, energy is being used to power the servers which are sending that film to you, Mm. right? And so what that means is every economic transaction is using energy. And the best, most effective source of energy that we've had and what kicked off this huge expansion of the economy in the first place is fossil fuels. That makes it very difficult to transition away from fossil fuels. So if you take other environmental problems like CFCs and the hole in the ozone layer, Mm. you can regulate those away and you don't really have to change things too much. Is that because it's quite simple? It's one thing that you can quite easily replace? Yeah, it's due with the relationship between CFCs and the economy. So like you can make fridges using something other than CFCs. You Mm. can make hairspray using something other than CFCs. It's the extent to which the economy depends on fossil fuels. It's so intertwined that it becomes very difficult to just regulate it away. Yeah. 
So even now, for example, about 80% of the energy that we use to run the global economy comes from fossil fuels. Wow. So we're not talking about kind of a minor tweak. We're yeah. talking about a huge system-wide change. And that's everything then? That's that's manufacturing, that's services, yeah. that's transport, it's yes. everything? So UK emissions look to have kind of gone down against 1990, which is taken as a benchmark. So emissions of carbon dioxide. Yeah. Now, that's partly to do with how we calculate what emissions we're responsible for. Mm. Because... Yes. Yeah. There is an element of creative accounting going on, isn't there? In the UK, I know Greta Thunberg, when she did her speech to Parliament, was very critical about this creative accounting where the UK doesn't... Is it doesn't include for transport, doesn't include imports? So we count all the carbon emissions from the things that happen within UK borders. Yeah. So, you, you know, you burn some coal here, those emissions count. Right. But since 1990, the UK economy has kind of reduced the amount of manufacturing it does mm-hmm. and moved more and more to office-based work. But we still buy and use as many manufactured goods. Yeah. Right. It's just that we now buy them from China. Yeah. So what you see is UK emissions gone down. Uh, China's have gone up. Yeah. I know we're, we're great because we're not producing them anymore. But actually, there's still a lot of those emissions are still happening. They're just not happening here. They're happening somewhere else. Yeah, thanks very much. You yeah. put your dirty factory in your country. Yes, and we'll exactly. we'll just buy, buy all the nice clean yeah. stuff and bring it over here. Yeah. Yes. Which leads very nicely into this point that people always make. Well, if the UK is doing loads to bring down our carbon emissions, what's the point if China and India and sub-Saharan Africa, if their emissions are going up, what's the point in the UK doing their bit? Partly it's because the UK has the moral responsibility to do so, because historically we have been one of the biggest emitters. You know, we've got to where we are by burning a lot of fossil fuels and becoming rich off it. And so we owe it to other countries to reduce our own emissions Mm -hmm. to an extent to allow them to catch up with us. Yeah. The problem with the moral responsibility, though, is that so many people just care about making money, don't they? So how do you translate that into action, changing that because it's the right thing to do? I mean, I think what's interesting is how you framed that question, actually. You could find some people who say, I just want to make money. Maybe I'm an optimist, but I don't think most people are motivated purely by wanting to make money. Mm. I think we are trapped in an economic system which forces that way of thinking onto us. Mm. So so I think most people who run businesses, for example, don't get up in the morning and think, yes, I'm going to make a load of money today. Like you, A lot of people start businesses because they care about the service they're providing or you know they, they want to bring something to their community. Yeah, but then they end up as yeah. a baddie from a Bond movie. Yeah. <laughs> Chopping down well, forests well, and they... <laughs> abusing human rights. And <laughs> I mean, I'm not, not quite that right, but like basically, <laughs> basically, if you're a business, you have to make money to survive. Of course. And if you're an employee if you're a worker you have to get a wage to be able to survive and that Mm. means that often also means you end up doing work which either you think is not good for the world or potentially not even very useful and so I think that's where the change has to come is basically pressure on politicians to think about how we change that system where so we have a system where you don't have to be chasing money all the time for your business to survive. That's interesting. Actually before we go on I interrupted you. You were saying there are two things. First of all, there's a moral responsibility. And then secondly, why should the UK care about their carbon emissions when China's emissions are going up and up? I think we have to care because China have to do something. At least we really want them to do something about their emissions. 
Mm. Ah, that's two different things, isn't it? So right. either China have to do something or we want them to, please, will you? Well, let, let, OK, so maybe let me tell you, first of all, why um, I'm scared of climate change. Okay. Kind of puts that in context. From my point of view, so I'm an ecological economist, and the starting point of that is that the economy is part of the environment. And what that means is that the economy and the environment kind of change together over time. So the economy we have is a product of the environment that it's come from. Mm-hmm. And so if you look over Earth's history, millions of years ago, the temperature was very variable. Then about 10,000 years ago, that temperature stabilised. And then it was during that kind of stable period that humans developed agriculture, settled societies, and then we developed the capitalist economy that we have. Mm-hmm. The danger with climate change is that we push the Earth out of this stable environmental condition mm-hmm. and we go back to these very variable, very high temperatures that humans actually have never lived with. And so the danger is that we don't know what will happen. We don't know if the economy that we have, which developed in one set of environmental conditions, will be able to function in a very different set of conditions. And there's no evidence that a different set of conditions, a very unstable climate, will make it easy to build a better society than we have now. So that's what I mean when I say China will have to do something about their emissions. What I mean is, assuming that China wants, or any country wants us to remain with a society that looks something like we have now, mm-hmm. or better, then we all have to do something about our emissions. Yeah. Now, obviously, that's not a hard and fast rule. Somebody could go, well, I don't care. But I, I think most people on reflection would say, well, there's, you know, there's, there's something good about society. I don't want society to get worse. Yeah. I'm very interested in, we've had this principle about polluter pays. Now, obviously, that on a smaller scale applies to, you know, if if a load of pollution comes off your land and affects the land of the person next to you. But surely that principle should apply globally. I mean, if we think, for example, plastic manufacturers, the world is being flooded with cheap plastic products without the manufacturers of those products having to bear the burden of the cleanup of all of that stuff which is now going into the oceans poisoning the planet how has the creation of the pollution been so decoupled from the cleanup because now we are all suffering we are all paying for that with climate change drought pollution how can we address that and why hasn't it been addressed before we are locked into this economic system which really only rewards profit Mm. Um, and, and that happens on kind of lots of different levels, right? So if we take the example of the plastic producers, mm. well, I mean, it's it's kind of easy to look at the problem and say, well, why doesn't government just say to them, look, you've got to pay for this or, or even not even pay for it. We're, we're just going to stop you. Part of the problem there is that actually governments are elected well, mostly governments are elected by large bodies of people, mm. right? And say you t- go to a plastic manufacturer and say you can no longer produce plastic. Mm-hmm. All of a sudden, huge bodies of people are out of work. And so they go to you, the government, and they go, no, no, get out of here. So that relationship actually creates a really strong and quite legitimate reason for those people who are employed producing plastics to want you to keep producing plastics. But right? won't they just manufacture something else? Because the economy's got to go on. People need their shiny stuff. But those kind of transitions are difficult, right? Yeah. So first of all, people will lose out. Some people will lose out in transition. They won't be very happy about that. Yeah. But but there are, there are other yeah. reasons. There are other reasons as well, right? Which is so people have become very rich from producing all this plastic. And if you're wealthy in the economy we have, that means that you have a lot of power. Mm. And so they're able to push back against some of this regulation. Governments, as I said, have incentives to keep those people happy. So it might be because of the employment issue. It might be because they receive a lot of money in donations. Yeah. 
when you change a system, there will be losers. Yeah. And it's about who those losers are. And basically, the losers from climate change or other ecological crises are more likely to be people who are poorest now. Yeah. So the people who are wealthiest now have every incentive to keep the system running as it is because they do well out of it. Yeah. So you go to the pound shop and you buy something that's incredibly polluting and in a plastic package that can't be recycled. It's incredibly cheap. Now, surely the government could switch the economy so that the more environmentally responsible behaviour is cheaper and therefore benefits people more than buying something that's in a plastic package, you know, or eating meat, driving your car. There could surely be a point at which the government could say, right, that is the sort of behaviour that we want to discourage. And so we're going to make that more difficult. That doesn't crush the economy. Surely it just presents new opportunities in different areas. Well, one of the reasons that doesn't happen is because you have to think about who the winners and losers of that change are. Right. And basically, there's a lot of powerful political and economic forces which are pushing you not to do that. So that is, on the one hand, the people who have factories the way they're set up now mm-hmm. and who make a lot of money from it. Mm. And also the consumers who like the way it is now, and maybe not even like, but if you make a lot of goods more expensive, there are a lot of poor people who will lose out. They will not be able to buy as much stuff. They may not be able to make ends meet because of that increase in prices. Ah, but there should be a corresponding drop in prices for the items that are more environmentally favourable. So the example we were talking about before was bleach to clean everything versus your baking soda. You try and find baking soda cleaning products, you know, in the pound shop or in most supermarkets. You can't find them. We're all being funneled down this route of buying everything that's bleach and toxic and nasty and polluting. Sure. One of the uh, the terms that's been used to describe the most recent developments in the economy is what we call uh, consumer capitalism, which is basically the idea that manufacturers are convincing you that you have to keep buying more stuff because otherwise you won't be happy. Yes. It's everywhere, isn't it? Yeah. This idea that unless you've got the latest shiny thing, that somehow you're failing at life. Yeah, and I think that runs from whether you have the latest iPhone right down to whether you're using vinegar or, you know, this specialist cleaner, which is only for the ceramic toilet. I think that's true, because when I've told people that I'm starting to investigate using baking soda to clean my house, they're kind of like, oh, my God, it's not the war. You can, yeah, you know, yeah. you know that other things are available. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, yeah. yeah, but I'm choosing to investigate another option. Unless they're, you know, like me, they're kind of on this journey. Yeah. Most people go, oh my god, I would never do that. You know, it doesn't smell pine fresh. Yeah, this again, I think, comes back to the way the economy works is you have to keep selling people stuff. Yeah. And so, you know, what what's a better way to sell people stuff and make more money? Is it to say, ooh, buy more vinegar, or, ooh, look, we've got 10 new different kinds of cleaning products. You better have all of them. Yeah, and then you can be proud of yourself, proud of your home. Your friends will want to come over because it smells lovely. Yeah. Yeah, rather than being a laughingstock on the street because your house smells of vinegar. Yeah, but but also... But also we have this systemic problem, which is that if everybody stopped buying the stuff they don't need, the economy basically would collapse. Wow. Because that is the whole system is predicated on buying more and more stuff. Right. And if we stop buying more and more stuff, then people don't have jobs. People therefore can't buy the stuff they need to live. 
And so we're trapped in this endless cycle of keep buying the stuff you don't need, otherwise you don't, you can't buy the things you do need. Otherwise people lose their jobs yeah. and the economy collapses. Okay, so now we're into the nitty gritty. Yeah. So, so what the hell do we do about that then? Because if the economy demands consumption, but consumption is what's creating this environmental problem, what do we do? <laughs> we need we need a different kind of economy. I mean, there's lots of dynamics at work, but one of the key ones is basically to try and make profits businesses have to become more productive so basically reduce their costs and increase the amount of money they make which means using uh, less people to produce more and more and then convincing you to buy that right and that that's what we call labor productivity growth and it sounds great because as productivity growth goes up we can get more stuff with fewer people but it's only great as long as you're not one of the people that's not needed anymore yes because if you can produce more stuff with less people yeah and some people become employed and can't afford to buy the stuff. Yes, but in order to keep that going, you're convincing people to buy more and more of that. And that's good because it means employment is still up there. Okay. And more than just consumption, the, the whole economy runs on the idea of growth. The way that investment works, for example, is investors expect to get more money back next year than they put in. Yeah. And so broadly for that to function well, you need the whole economy to be bigger next year because otherwise most people aren't getting more money and therefore investment dries up. And if investment dries up, then businesses aren't able to produce as much and they maybe start squeezing wages. If they start squeezing wages, then people buy less and then you get into that downward spiral and you get into recession. Okay. Right. So... There are kind of there have been a couple of things proposed about what you can do about that, right? Mm-hmm. So one is when businesses become more productive, instead of saying, "Oh, great, now we can produce more and more stuff," you basically say, "Okay, so well, what if instead of working a five-day week, you worked a four-day week? Because now you can produce the same amount of stuff you would have done in five, but in four days." And then people are free to have more fun. Yeah. Spend time with their kids. Yeah, exactly. And and so and and this has all, numerous other benefits, like you said, right? So it's been put forward by uh, a lot of kind of feminist scholars as a way to reduce the burden uh, on women, because still, sadly, women do most of the housework, most of the caring, and they do it on top of a full-time job. Mm-hmm. So if you actually reduce the working hours, mm-hmm. then you make life easier. Um, the other alternative is that you try and reduce productivity growth you don't try and become more productive so that means that you don't get more and more stuff but it does potentially mean that work is more pleasant because we know that a lot of the ways that that the economy has become more productive actually damages our experience of work so so people become more and more stressed yeah trying to create more and more and greater results and more sales yeah or even if you think about how work is organized right like people tend to do one job and that job tends to be quite repetitive Mm -hmm. Um, because you're doing the same thing day in day out now that's good from a productivity point of view because you do the same thing over and over again so you become really good at it and you can produce lots of stuff but it can be kind of boring right like imagine if on one day you could do one job and on the second day you could go do something completely different like making a podcast yes yeah (laughs) and it might be less you know you might only produce one podcast a month rather than ten Mm -hmm. but wouldn't wouldn't it be kind of more enjoyable you'd have a bigger range of things you could do I love the idea of a four-day week. I've met some people who run businesses who have trialled a four-day week and say that actually productivity was certainly not suffered. It's either remained the same or it's gone up a bit. But the most noticeable thing is that people want to work there, people stay loyal to the company, and everybody is just happier. Yeah, I mean, and and I I agree. I think the idea of like a four-day week or a three-day week is wonderful, right? I am slightly more sceptical about 
with the system we have whether that is really enough to Mm. solve our environmental crises basically because the underlying dynamic of the system is still the same which is that you know if your motivation for going to a four-day week is that you reduce your costs Mm -hmm. because lower turnover people want to work for you so they produce a bit more they work more effectively then basically it's still the same logic of i need to make more money yeah and therefore that's coupled to i need to sell more stuff okay so what's the answer so so definitely definitely let's work less yeah. But we need to think about, it just needs to be coupled to slightly more fundamental changes, okay. which is really about, as a society, saying, what do we want? Like, mm. why are we chasing productivity growth? Why do we always want to be consuming more? And I think it's we're being sold a lie, basically, about what it means to live a good life. By advertisers? By advertisers, by powerful people and powerful companies who make a lot of money off that. Mm. Um, and it's it's not going to be easy, but I think it's about organising at a grassroots level to to put pressure on governments, to put pressure on companies to say Let, let's do this differently. And mm. there'll be pushback. I think one thing that the environmental movement has to be really aware of is that the things we're asking for threaten very powerful people, mm. and they will not want us to be successful. Yeah. But I do think that if we are successful, it's not just a case of avoiding environmental collapse. It's a case of building a world which is much better. Where people are happier. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, more content with what we have instead of this constant scramble to have more, more, more. Yes, and, and also because there's a kind of a distributional issue here, which is that like a lot of reasons that pound shops are successful is because people struggle to get by. Mm-hmm. And so one of the things you do to make pound shops less attractive is you make it easier for people to get by. And that could be raising wages and income at the bottom. Or it could be about making kind of the basic necessities of life a right so that you're not having to scramble about to make sure you've got enough food that you can heat your house. Yeah. But those things are provided for you. Ah, so are you talking about universal basic income or services? Could be, could be. That's, that's, I mean, I think that's a really interesting idea. And because basically if you had, if you were given enough money that you could go out and buy what you needed then you're all of a sudden the power dynamic at work changes because you no longer have to take that job yeah you know you're in a much stronger position to argue for better working conditions because you're not desperate to make ends meet yeah um there's a great book by anthropologist david graber what's the, what's the deal with swearing on your podcast you go for it so the book is called bullshit jobs and he talks to loads of people who feel that they do work which is not necessarily harmful but pointless mm. they just don't do anything which is socially useful but they do it partly because they need the money if they need to live. Yeah. But if you give those people the money, then they don't have to do that work. They can go out and do something which they think is genuinely useful for society. Wow. So how are we going to get to this radical utopia? <laughs> <laughs> what can people do? So the, the takeaways are I'm not, I'm, I'm not knocking people who don't fly, go vegetarian, um, don't use single-use plastic uh, and some Good. of the things I do myself. Because right? otherwise I've got no podcast, <laughs> basically. If we slate all of those things straight off in episode one, then I can't talk to anyone about anything. <laughs> no, I mean, I mean, like, so I, you know, I have my reusable cup and I, um, I don't eat meat and I try not to fly. Mm-hmm. But I do think that where most of our energies needs to be is on organising to try and build this brave new world. So it's mm. about, it's it's things like writing to your MP and trying to push for these bigger changes. It's things like going along to Extinction Rebellion meetings and getting to know the people who are working in this area and thinking about what you can do as part of this political process, yeah. as well as those individual actions. Yeah. 
I would encourage people not to beat themselves up about the individual things they can do mm-hmm. because I think it, trying to live a perfectly sustainable environmentally friendly life is incredibly hard mm. um, because basically the entire the entire society we have is set up to make it difficult to do that and I think there's a danger that if you spend all of your time and energy trying to be as perfectly environmentally pure as you can then you don't have the energy left over to go try and fight for those wider changes yeah it's about organizing politically around things which might not look immediately like they're environmental so around things like a shorter working week a universal basic income because even though they are not immediately reducing carbon emissions they can be part of this program to build a very different kind of economy which ultimately is more environmentally friendly so write your mp get involved in the community but then also don't feel bad about yeah. the choices that you're making day to day. Yeah, and, and talk and talk to people as well. Like a lot of where this change has to come from is in different ideas about what it means to live a good life. And, and it can be awkward to have those conversations with people, but not only could we avoid climate change, but if, if we could build a different world, what would you want that world to look like? So tell me, you've listened to what Dr. Simon had to say. What do you think? God, this is like calling up the doctor's surgery. (laughs) (laughs) What's your diagnosis? (laughs) Um, It's basically, it's just money. It's all money. It's capitalism, which I I don't want to do anything about. I like Starbucks. (laughs) I go to McDonald's. It's just it's such a vicious cycle. But you can still have McDonald's and Starbucks. But would you write your MP to support the universal basic income? Yes, but my MP is Esther McVeigh. And before that, it was George Osborne. It's, you know, they're really busy. So I would absolutely, and I probably will now, write to my MP. But I probably, I'll get a stock reply. And I, I bet they do absolutely naff all about it. No, 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 no. I wrote to my MP and I was absolutely astonished. I was so impressed. It's not something that I've ever done. I'm not an MP botherer. (laughs) I just did it this once. I decided to write to her because I'd found out that my kids don't really know anything about climate change. And I was so surprised by that, that loads of modules on climate change have been removed from the national curriculum. And I think that's the wrong direction of travel. I think that kids should be learning about it, not just as part of geography or part of sciences. It ought to, given that we're in an emergency status and the government has declared this emergency status, kids ought to be learning about it as a core part of their curriculum. And they're not. So I was quite shocked by that. And um, so I wrote to my MP about that. She got back to me. She asked me to come along to her surgery. I went and I sat with her and we had a really long chat. She then asked parliamentary questions to the Secretary of State about climate change education. And she did those things. And when I spoke to her about it, she was saying you would be astonished how important the post bag is for all MPs. It doesn't matter who they are. They really pay attention to what people write. Now, if you just get one letter on something, it's easy to dismiss. But if you start getting as little as five or six letters on the same topic then you know it's something that's really important because so many people don't write to their MP and when you get five or six letters on the same topic you know it's starting to be really important and that you've got to pay attention and I that really shocked me that the number was so low so you saying there that you don't think writing to your MP would make a difference 
that's what I would have thought until I actually spoke to my MP and found out the truth, which is that they really, really do listen. But is that because it's something that she thinks is important or is that because that's her job? I'm not necessarily a supporter of her politics, but she is my elected representative. She is my voice in Parliament. And so whether I agree with her political stance or not, she is paid to represent me. And so if I want something to change, if I want Parliament to discuss something that I think is important to me, then she's my conduit into that. And I think that's the thing. It's easy to sit at home and complain about your MP if you don't agree with their politics. But actually, once they're in the job, they're your representative. So if something's important to you, then, you know, bother them. We've got a guy that drives around my town in a van, like a rust bucket van. And it's got in massive letters, F-U-C-K, my MP. She doesn't care about her constituents, blah, blah, blah. It's just this massive spiel on the back of this shitty van. But I don't know what he's talking about. Like, (laughs) it's like, about what? Is it Brexit? Is it? Is he angry about his bins? I have no idea what is well, This is it. I think it's so easy to rant about your MP. And, you know, everyone's disillusioned with MPs, aren't they? I mean, it's just... And what's going on at the moment in Parliament is just crazy. But we are in a democracy. They are our representatives. How are they supposed to know what's important to you unless you speak to them, unless you actually write to them? Now, they might dismiss it. But you don't know. You might be like the 12th person that month to raise this issue with them, in which case they've got to pay attention to it. And if everyone sits at home and goes, oh, they'll never listen. Well, how can they listen if you don't speak? And I think that is so important as part of a democracy to really get involved, even in a small way. You don't have to be really rampant about it. Just write the letter. You might get the stock response, but you might be the first person to get the stock response. When the next person writes to them, the MP might go, oh, hang on, I've already had a letter about this this week. I need to now start paying attention and not give the stock answer. Yeah. Would you do that, though? Because, I mean, it's easy to say, yeah, "Yeah," because I'm ranting about it. Yes. Yeah, I'll do it. Promise. I'm not going to make you. I'll do it now. (laughs) I'm not going to make you. (laughs) No, I will do it. I will do it. I'm I bothered my I'm bothered. <laughs> I've con- I've contacted my MP a couple of times. And actually, they they have been really really helpful. Um, not so much this one, but the last one was actually. I'm and I'm not a Tory, but it was actually a really good MP <laughs> for the constituents. But you got your drains um, cleared out, didn't they? And that that's not a euphemism. <laughs> it was a wider problem between a few different authorities, and in the end, I just wrote. It was quite a funny letter in the end, and um, he responded to it in a similarly funny manner, which I was quite surprised by, um, and just got it completely sorted within a couple of weeks. I've been trying to get it sorted for about 10 years, and he just picked up the phone, had a conversation, and all these guys turned up with all these stinky rods. Oh, my God. I know. Rotted your drains. They just all swarmed. It was like a SWAT team. And they were like, oh, I heard you wrote to your MP. I was like, yes, I did. Now get on with it or I'll write to him again. So I do know that there are certain MPs that will get stuff done. And um, I will try this one. Why not? So what do you think you're right about? Um, I mean, it's difficult to know what to write about. Oh, God, am I just going to whinge about capitalism? She's going to think I'm mental. <laughs> but, <laughs> but actually, I have to think of a way to put it that oh, I don't know. Well, I'll tell you what. Why don't you not do it now if you don't know what you're going to write? Maybe as we go on with these podcasts, you know, there might be something that comes up for you that you just go, hang on a minute. This needs sorting. The other suggestion by Dr. Simon was becoming involved in a grassroots movement. 
So would you ever consider getting involved in a movement like Extinction Rebellion? Am I a very, very bad person if I say no? No, I think you're part of the masses. I would actually rather do the paperwork. I'd rather do the writing letters than going out and protesting. Yeah. You can be part of Extinction Rebellion in an admin role, like you can. Fine, I'll take it. <laughs> like you can help with printing leaflets or making sure that safety equipment is all bought and the logistics are done and that stuff. You don't have to go out in the street banging drums and like screaming at policemen. That's more my speed. The sternly worded note. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's not just a bunch of crazy people just texting each other and turning up in the street. It's a whole movement. And there's a, a massive amount of work that goes on behind the scenes to organise things. So how would you start that? Would you just go on their website and contact them? Or? So you can just go either onto Facebook or Google it and uh, look up Extinction Rebellion in the name of your town. There are loads of individual meetings. You can just rock up wherever they are and see if you like it in my experience the people at these meetings are just completely normal people like the people who live on your street no i, I believe that's not like a succession of swampies no i mean they are out there but most of the people in fact there aren't any swampies at my meeting it's all completely normal people who you you know are your friends and neighbors really well that you know of they might be <laughs> blending into the background they might leave and then attach their dreadlocks and yeah um but i don't know i mean i feel like even in this conversation i might be pressuring you to do it is that no not at all it's... i mean i would i absolutely wouldn't do it if i didn't know you through this i'm going to be completely honest it is not something that i would take action on other than thinking oh why aren't the government doing more mm. yeah i am absolutely one of those people mm. who will sit back and go oh isn't it awful why don't they do something? Yeah. You know, this elusive they. Yeah. OK, well, that is really interesting. And I think it is baby steps. So as we go through this podcast, I'd be really interested to see whether you feel moved to do that and kind of what progress you make on it. But, you know, his third point was just not to feel bad about stuff. There's just too much guilt and trying to be perfect is, is just a lot of energy that could be spent doing other things. I feel like in episode one, we've got heavy quite quickly, <laughs> bringing down capitalism and changing the entire global <laughs> economic system. <laughs> it's like, fucking let's all have this shit. Get off your arses. <laughs> no. The theme tune should be just like a load of sirens and guns. And stuff. <laughs> Environmentally friendly guns. You know, we're going to go through lots of different episodes now and we're going to touch on lots of different things. And there are going to be some things which are really simple to do and there are going to be some things which are tougher. People may not feel they want to engage with. But that's the idea of the podcast is giving lots of ideas. Everybody will be different. Some people will feel absolutely fine going along to an Extinction Rebellion meeting or something like that, you know other protest groups are available i think let's just look at what people can do big and small and go from there yeah nice talking to you always a pleasure chin up chin up tits out <laughs> till next time Environmental was presented by Georgia Elliott Smith, featuring Amy Black and Dr. Simon Mayer. Photography by Ken Trellor and music by Kevin McLeod.